0: Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Morgan Jerkins. Morgan is the author of a collection of essays entitled This Will Be My Undoing that came out in 2018. And this month, she released her second book, Wandering in Strange Lands, about Black migration and the histories of Black people that have largely been kept hidden. Morgan is also the senior editor at Zora and a visiting assistant professor at Columbia University's School of the Arts. Remember, everything we discuss on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. Before we get to the episode, I want to take a moment to recognize some of the newest members of the Stacks Pack. These are people who contribute a small amount each month on our Patreon to help keep the show up and running, and they earn perks like our virtual book club and more for doing so. This week, I'd like to say an extra special thank you to Miriana Como, Michaela, Lisa Powers, Caitlin Vicora, Lara Goodrich-Ezor, Shannon Beck, Colleen Kylie, Alex Perlin, Kathy Miller, Jess Seagraves, Stephanie Ash, and Erica Bray. I cannot overstate this. If it weren't for the Stacks Pack, there would be no show. So thank you so much for your contributions to this podcast. If you want to join the Stacks Pack, head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Morgan Jerkins. All right, everybody. Well, we're here today with Morgan Jerkins. Morgan's brand new book is called Wandering in a Strange Land. Morgan, welcome to the stacks.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm very excited that we get to talk about your book. I didn't really know what to expect with your book because I like when you get it, it's sort of like this could be a whole lot of things. And it was, it exceeded my expectations and my my imagination of what it could have been. So I'm super excited. Will you just tell people in about 30 seconds or so kind of about the book?
1: Right. So growing up in New Jersey, I realized that my family had a lot of omissions and gaps with the things that they believed, the customs and the traditions that they cultivated. And I didn't realize that this was a result of moving away from my ancestral homelands. We were part of one of the greatest cultural shifts in American history from 1910 to 1970, millions of Africans. Americans migrated from the South all across the country to flee from racial terrorism. And my family was one of them. But because of that, we lost and we had these omissions now. So what I did was I went back and I did this like reverse migratory route, if you will, um, from the South, Midwest and West to forge these conversations and bridge the gaps between those who fled their ancestral homelands and those who remained in order to talk about systemic violence, land displacement, land loss, um, cultural erasure and, and lack of documentation. And in the process of talking about these multitudes of Black American experiences, I was also able to detail 300 years worth of my family history.
0: Yeah. I mean, so what's so cool about what you've done is that you've included this broader history, but then also connected it sort of to your personal history. And I know your background mm-hmm. is in kind of personal essays. I know that I, I read your yeah. first book also. So I'm yeah. curious, kind of, is that is that how you decided to enter the work or what, did that... Did including your personal family make it easier or harder for you to write this book?
1: That's a great question. So after I wrote This Will Be My I'm Doing, I was trying to move away from my personal essayist background. <laughs> I actually got into professional writing in twenty fourteen because I couldn't get a job in publishing or in digital media as an entry level person and I started writing online. Hmm. Um and at the time, yes, I was building a portfolio, but I also was at this, you know, the short end of like vitriol. Um, against young women, young women of color because of our hot takes or because we were confessionalists, if you will, Mm. when people didn't realize that was one of the only ways we can get a foothold in the industry. So after the success of my first book, um, I wanted to expand my repertoire and I wanted to be taken more seriously. And I did all of this research for the second book and the first couple of drafts weren't coming together. I did not include my family in the first couple of drafts. Hmm. And my editors were like, you have to. You, like, you you have a stake in this, right? And right. now I look back. Like, I'm like, well, duh. But because I exposed so much of my interior life in my first book, psychologically, I just shut up like a clam. Hmm. And so it took a couple of drafts, it co- took a lot of come to Jesus moment, it took a lot of crying hmm. to be like, okay, you gotta put yourself in this again. Because otherwise, there's no anchor. And it's gonna feel so distant, and it's gonna feel a little bit hollow. And yeah, I was able to pull it together, thankfully.
0: I can't even imagine this book without that, because it does feel so, I mean, the version that I read, obviously, like what's out in the world now is so connected to your family and to, I mean, not just you personally, but also the generations of your family. But I guess, so I guess my question then is, what was the book like before?
1: it was at it was like academic collages of meditations like there's huh. one chapter where I speak about water there is no personal anecdote I'm just it's a part of a larger chapter where it's like a meditation of water <laughs> meditation on this very disconnected very much like if you know music like staccato like yeah that the flow isn't there um and so that's what it was like before and it was I went through two full drafts hmm. of the book and then my editors called my agent up. And my agent's like, can I call you up? And I was like, oh, no. And then we had to have a whole meeting where I came into the office. I was just like, I'm scared. My book's good. my book deal's going to get canceled. I can't pull it together. It oh was my a God. lot." So they tattled on you. Oh, see, because <laughs> we, need to ha- we need to bring her in now because you go through two full drafts of all of this research and we're still hitting the mark, let's not waste our time and let's like go to a third job, let's actually get together again right, and right. start it. Because mind you, when I wrote the book proposal for this, it, if I show you the book proposal, you could be like, what? By the way, for audience members, book proposals, you have to submit that for a nonfiction project. It was not like this at all. I got inspiration for this book when I watched the movie Get Out. And I know you're probably thinking like, get out, how? Well, there's a climactic scene towards the end of the, of the movie where the black male protagonist has his hand wrapped around the white female protagonist's girlfriend who's actually trying to kill him, and a police car pulls up. And I was watching this movie while I was in Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem, and everyone mm. in the theater just collectively gasped. Right, And right. I was astounded because I thought to myself, I'm not a native Harlemite, and I know there's probably some people in here aren't natives either, but we have this collective instinctual fear of the land, of being displaced, of systemic uh, violence for mm-hmm. the powers that may be. And I wanted to first do a book that was like just a melange of the fears and the intergenerational traumas of Black people. Hmm. And when I spoke to two scholars um, who are based in Boston, Dr. Carrie Greenidge and Kendra Field, they were like, "Oh, this sounds like a migration story." Hmm. So even the book proposal was just a carnal of what I was about to get into.
0: Wow! Wow! Okay. So I we ha- so one of the things. I don't think there's really spoilers in this book because it's nonfiction, but one of the things I really, really want to talk to you about, as someone whose family is Creole from Louisiana, I'm... Yeah, I'm curious about um, the kind of... I guess personally for you, the shame or fear that you might have felt in talking about your Creole family or like the Creole people, but also in... um, black people who owned other slaves there's a lot of stuff in this book that's sort of like icky maybe we don't want to talk about in mixed company so I'm curious about what that was like for you especially as you then had to tie it to your own personal life as opposed to just being able to report on it historically speaking
1: right where in Louisiana is your family from
0: Baton Rouge well I know that my dad was born in Baton Rouge but um past my dad's generation i know my grandparents were born there also but past that i know nothing
1: okay cool um i only knew that i was creole about four or five years ago Hmm. my father is oh man how old is my father my my father is uh will be 69 this year and i didn't know i was creole until four or five years ago just something that was talked about i lived in south jersey I didn't know any Creole people. Hmm. From that context, it was if you say you're Creole, you're a light-skinned black person who thinks they're better than everyone, and right. you want to distance yourself from your blackness or just add a dash of it into your story of your Frenchness, your right. Spanishness, and your Indian right. baby. Um, and so, for me, when I heard this, I was like, "Well, why was I never told this?" My dad's family migrated to Fayetteville, North Carolina, so there wasn't any. It's not a Creole, a sizable Creole population either. So all these different migrations, something was lost along the way. My hmm. my father's my grandfather on my father's side he spoke French. My dad doesn't speak French. Um, we're from Saint Martin Parish, which is a large francophone po- uh, speaking um, population in the Acadiana region of Louisiana. And the Louisiana part section was so hard for me hmm. for a couple reasons. One reason is I I'm on the internet right. and I know what and I know what it's like for people to take parts of my work, small snapshots of thousands words long chapters that conclude research and to mangle it, Mm
0: -hmm. to just
1: stamp it out because they wanna make a point or because they're just being cruel. Right. And when you're talking about the fact that, yes, Creole at one point was distinct from black because Louisiana prior to being a part of the United States via the Louisiana Purchase, it was its own distinction. They mm-hmm. had these own communities. To to find out that, you know, when I was growing up, I learned my, my, my like my idea of black history was so simplified in a public school system. Sure. It was your your ancestors were captured near the west coast of the African continent. They came over via the transatlantic slave trade to the colonies, you know, slavery, emancipation, reconstruction, Harlem Renaissance, civil rights and then Obama, that was it. I never learned that there were black people who existed, who were free prior to Lincoln. I did not know there were free people of color who had their own communities. I did not know that free people of color and black people owned slaves, participated in the plantation economy. In fact, thousands of them. And that disturbed me because when you are taught that black at a certain point in American history automatically equals slave, then you posit your identity or your legacy as completely opposite from whiteness in terms of access to power and capital and just influence. So when I went down to Louisiana and realized that, no, your people actually oscillated somewhere in the middle and they actually participated in the plantation economy, I was uncomfortable, and I wanted readers to to sit with that discomfort with me and to realize that so much of this journey, yes, it's unpacking things, but what is the weight of that on your emotions? It's not just some revelation and just some like, wow moment. It's like, no, this actually hurts, and sometimes investigation does hurt when it gets personal it gets too close for comfort, but I had to tell myself that if I try to obscure this part, if I try to anesthetize these certain portraits that I'm giving, then it's counterproductive to the, to the whole book in general. I'm just do, I'm just basically undoing all my work as I'm writing it.
0: Right. I mean, and you say that in the book throughout. You're kind of like, didn't know that. Like, whoops, this gets
1: it's like, weird. Yeah. So it's like, get weird. Like, I don't like this. And, you know, I wanted people to understand that there were moments where I was alone a lot. When I was going to certain parts of the Deep South, when I was in Oklahoma, um, I was... In my, you know, hotel room alone with just my, with my recordings and my photos, and there wasn't anybody sitting beside me. And, and no certain ones, not granted there were other times people around, but there were there were a lot of times also where I was just by myself, and I wanted people to understand what that's like, Right. you know, to not only do not only do this work, but to do it in many parts alone and as a black woman, and put myself into these precarious positions, uncomfortable positions intellectually, but also in dangerous positions, just driving around.
0: Sure, yeah, and you talk about that a lot about the danger of doing the research and kind of the the fear of going into these places without knowing A, what you're going to find out and B, without knowing who you're going to meet or what their relationship to you is going to be. I know as a reader, I felt a lot of kind of embarrassment, I think maybe is the right word, that I didn't know a lot of the stuff that you were talking about too, you know? And I felt like... I, I I say shame. I don't know if that's the right word, but I was I like, for example, I did not know of the Gullah people. I did know of Gullah Gullah Island, but I mm-hmm. did not know that was a thing. And I kind of, when, when I read that part, I was like, you should be terrified or mortified to admit that publicly that, what? you know, like Binya Bina from Gullah Gullah Island, but you don't know.
1: Right. But I didn't either. I say in the book, the only, the only, the two snapshots of knowledge that I had about Gullah Geechee people was Gullah Gullah Island and the fact that one of my closest friends has a, has, you know, a grandmother who was of Gullah descent. The thing is, is that it's not by design that people of African descent in this country, even white people or anybody, do not know this much about the multiple ethnic groups or subethnic groups under African-Americans, the multiple experiences. It's right. not by design. Right. And I, that's what I want you to understand is like it comes down to the lack of documentation or when there's documentation, it's not in these communities hands. The fact that we often not we, but the bigger we devalue oral histories. When really, that's a, all what black families had at the time. Right. You know, and also this continual displacement that's happening. So that's what I want you to understand. It's like if you feel shame for all you readers out there, if you read it and you come across something like, why did I know that? It's like, Yeah, of course, there's Google and of course, there's Wikipedia, but we don't live if you're an American, we don't live in a country that that not only values our lives to the fullest extent, but values our histories as well.
0: Sure. And you'd have to know to even Google that. Like I would have to know I'd have to think back to Gullah Gullah Island and be like, where does this come from? Which was a show that came out when I was a kid. So, you know, I'm not like I think about it every day, you know, but but it's true that it's not designed for us to know that information. I'm curious. I don't, I rarely ask this question because I almost always feel like the answer is never exciting or interesting to me, but I, I have this feeling that you're going to have a good answer, which was, okay. did you have a particular audience in mind when you set out to write this book?
1: You know what? It's, it's interesting when you say that, because if, if my book was initially supposed to come out in May, then right. the pandemic happened and the lockdown happened and excuse me, and the protests happened. Right. And I think when, if the book would have came out in May 12th, I would have said everybody, You know what I mean? Because I'm selling a book here. Right. 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 But I think for me, it's like after the protests happened, I just realized that it's there's a cyclical nature to what is going on. And it's because our country has not reckoned with the devastation brought about on black communities, Hmm. The, the the repercussions of these. Dis, you know the disconnect of african American memory and why we have to keep moving in the first place, and why there's this black rage and then there's black progress and then there's white backlash to that mm-hmm. right for me, it's like I want this to reach for example, black people who always curious about their elders but they were not sure and they were like i don't know if they're lying anymore after reading this book i write i write this for people who you know have an interest in cultural history especially from vulnerable communities that you're not going to see all splashed out on vacation brochures and on you know and, and all these different travel channels all the time right i i'm i want white people to read this because when we, talk, when we talk about slavery, we see it as like this distant thing, and it's not. It's something that is reverberating even into the present day. And I want them to see that, that the past and present for a lot of African-American communities collapses into one. When I think about also who I write this for, I write this for the ancestors I never knew. Hmm. I write this for the children that I want to have one day, to know that whatever happens, you can name your ancestors several generations back. So it's for different people with different types of goals here. But in all, I want anybody who has an interest in black people, and I mean, not just, I'm gonna teach you about racism, I'm talking about the grit of black people. The wealth gap, the movement, um, like I said, the land theft and loss, the resilience, but also the different statues in place to curtail our movement, to curtail our autonomous living, to curtail us finding that freedom on American soil and how it stretches into the present day from the centuries old horrific legacy, then this is the book for you. Damn, girl, you just sold the shit out of that book. Is that good? Okay. <laughs> i, I got to make it good now.
0: Look, I mean, I don't, you're making my job easier. I don't have to even tell anybody to get the book because they're going to just go get it right now. Um, okay. As I can just tell that you're a kindred spirit with me when it comes to research and um, organization. I can just tell you're a very organized person. I just, I'm just getting that vibe from you. So I'm curious because there are so many kind of layers in the book, and this book is not that long. So I commend you for editing and getting it down to be tight because there is so much.
1: Oh, it's my editors. Let me well, tell you something. The team. <laughs> yeah, yeah, team. The team definitely helps in terms of my process. So the way that I want to enter into this answer is just talking about the mo- money and privilege that I got from doing this book. Um, sure. maybe it was about a month or two months ago, there was a whole topic on publishing paid me. Yeah. Um, And I didn't participate in it. The reason why I didn't participate in it is because my story is an outlier. Um, mm. I got a two book deal this time. Um, my first book was a first book deal, and then it was like, I got a two book deal this time. And from the two book deal, I was able to afford a freelance transcriptionist who was fast. Mm. Who anytime I had over an interview, I could send it to her, and I knew I was going to get that back within a day or two. Wow! Even if I interviewed multiple people, and there was hundreds of pages of transcription. Wow! And all I must have spent anywhere from ten to fifteen thousand dollars wow. to do the research and the traveling and all of that. So I just want to put that out there as just like a disclaimer. Um, for me, it and that comes
0: of- from your in advance. Yep. Yeah.
1: Okay. Yes, it came from my advance. Um. In terms of the organization, it was like a Google Drive, folders, and then a folder within that folder and a folder within that folder, <laughs> giving it up between videos and photos and secondary sources that I found on JSTOR about this about this particular type of people and then talking to these particular type of people with their transcripts. Um, it was color-coded. And I think when I actually brought my family in in the later drafts, that's when I started to see the synapses connecting. And I was like, oh, now I really see how if I'm, if I'm going to use my family as an anchor, and I've already been looking at these other transcripts and places that I went to before, I'm seeing the pattern starting to arise already. So I know what to ask my family. And then from there, know how I'm going to start each chapter, which is with some kind of personal anecdote. Right. So that's how I did it.
0: Wow. Were there things because the scope of the book is so huge, were there things that you couldn't include that you wish you could have done deeper dives into or like because some of these sections could have been their own book?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the things that I wanted that I wish I could have wrote about and I wrote about it so many times that I really wanted to keep it was the amount of all black towns Mm. that was in Oklahoma. Oklahoma at one point was supposed to be a black utopia. Wow. It was supposed to be a place for black people. It was supposed to be an all-black state, and wow. actually, um, and I think if I'm not mistaken, Jim Crow crushed it. But I think about if any of you readers or you, Tracy, if you watch Watchmen, if you watch, I'm Watchmen, watching that yeah. right now. Literally, okay, so, that's what
0: I was doing before I came so <laughs> so to the talk first to you. Episode,
1: the yeah. First episode was on the 1921 Tulsa massacre, which is one of the biggest massacres of a black thriving town. Right. That, you know, there was an accusation of rape and white people came in and ravaged Greenwood mm-hmm. District. It was Black Wall Street at the time. And I wanted to write about more of all black towns, Oklahoma, because if any of you pick up the book, I write about freedmen, freedmen who were um, black and indigenous people of the five civilized tribes who were given gl- land allotments. And it was because of Creek Freedmen and also migrants, African-American migrants coming into Indian territory, Oklahoma, that black Wall Street existed, hmm. but also these all black towns and they're disappearing. There's not nearly as many now. So when we talk about, you know, I thought, what if I had the bad intention, white reader, that's just like, well, why don't these people just go get their own communities? We did. Right. And they're not there anymore. Right. You know what I mean they were destroyed be- and we wanted to be left alone. you know what I'm saying? We wanted to be left alone they were destroyed or it was because of Jim Crow or it was because of intimidation to get off the land. you know what I mean ta co's writtens written about this in this famous the case of reparations right and so i i I couldn't include it because I had to it could have like you said it could have been a whole book it could have been a, it could have really deviated off the the railroad track that I was on, but they did exist, and right. they're not there as much anymore.
0: Yeah, one of the other things that I thought was so interesting, and I could have, I would read a whole book on this, was the DNA testing and the that relationship to indigeneity and how oftentimes Black folks are told that in their family they got Indian in them, right? Like that's the phrase that people use, and and so often when you then spit in the tube for one of those companies or whatever to t- trace your DNA, it comes back that you that you're not that you don't have uh, Native American ancestry. And I thought that was so interesting. Can you talk a little bit about why there's that disconnect between people believing it's in their family line and then the DNA testing from these companies, not showing that?
1: Yeah. Well, think about the ghost of the one drop rule. There are black women that I know that I'm not know person, but know of who are in the DNA 51% white or 56% white and less black, but yet they are black people because of the way they're socialized and the way that, you know, the state treats them, right? Sure. Um, DNA cannot tell the full history when it comes to Native American lineage. The reason why, for example, is a lot of times, um, the samples that they do have, they talk, like, a lot of Native American communities, they originate 10,000 years ago from Asia, for example, one of the places so they're it's going way back you know it's Mm -hmm. not taken into account you know the five civilized tribes for example who were there in the 14 15 16 1700s in the american south another thing is a lot of native american communities don't give their blood to corporations why would they trust them to begin with sure. they have been sterilized they have been there've been so many things in place to annihilate them off the face of the map so why would they give their 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 saliva to these big corporate in, in, you know corporations so dna cannot tell the full story and another thing that I want people to keep in mind is that when we say we have a little Indian, in them, just a little crash, of the history course, um, you've read the book, so you know. When former President Andrew Jackson, I think believe it was in 1830, that forced the five civilized tribes in the South, the Cherokee, the Chicktaw, Chick-Taw the Choctaw, the Creek and the Seminole to move west of the Mississippi into Indian territory, which is known as Oklahoma, that, that forced movement was called the Trail of Tears. I was never taught that black people accompanied them on that journey, they did. Every group of the five civilized tribes, with the exception of the Seminoles, because they had like a taxation sy- system, they owned slaves. And in fact, the Cherokee tribe was the largest slave holding tribe out of the five civilized tribes. And they were based, um, they were localized in places like Georgia, where part of my family's from in Tennessee. So I said to myself, if it is the case that the five civilized tribes their migratory patterns overlap with black communities, then could it be the case that all of our families are lying? Hmm. Is, is, does, that, does that mean we're all of this collective delusion? No. I've spoken to pe- scholars who study blackness and indigeneity in the American context, and it's like, no, our, all our grandmothers are li- li- not lying. <laughs> now it's complicated. I'm not saying you can just go to you know Cherokee Nation right now and be like, I'm Cherokee. But what I'm trying to say is, is that when it comes to documentation and who is what and all these different blood degrees and all that, that was not so in the beginning. When these, when these, you know, when these uh, five civilized tribes first moved over west of the Mississippi.
0: Yeah, that documentation piece is something that I've been grappling with a lot recently. Um I don't know if have you ever heard the podcast Still Processing with Wesley Morris and yeah. Jenna Wortham yeah. it's my like one of my faves and they had an episode on um Aunt Jemima and they were talking about how Aunt Jemima's family members or the the women who played Aunt Jemima in the minstrel shows how their fam how the different women their families went and tried to get money from like quaker or whatever the big company was and they said no because you can't prove correctly that you were actually related to these women but of course that's because the documentation isn't there and and these ideas of documentation being the end-all be-all is sort of like another moving of the bar, right? It's like the bar moves when it comes to black folks, because we don't have the documentation. However, we don't have the documentation because people didn't think we were valuable enough to be documented.
1: Exactly. But also, for the descendants of enslaved Africans, reading and writing was life or death. Sure, You know what I'm saying? It was a matter of life or death. And so when people I remember, I'm going to tell you the story, like I actually lived with a white guy who, when I used to tell him about my experience as a black woman, he was always like, where's your proof? Cite your sources, cite your data. And it, used to, and it used to make me upset because I'm like, just because my work is, my life is not cited in some academic journal or is it validated by tense people of the academy, that doesn't mean it's any less true. Right. And so that's another thing that I wanted people to understand. It's like, don't discard oral storytelling. For a lot of these black communities, that's the means that's of the survival. And we're indebted to them because of that. Um, So, yeah, I definitely wanted to really reiterate that as I moved throughout the country.
0: Right. And even in your writing, it sort of feels like you're coming to understand that fact more and more. Right. Like when you talk about having um, Native American blood and thinking that that was maybe just a myth among your family members and not quite understanding that that those oral traditions actually had a lot of weight and value. I feel like that was something that was really big throughout the book for you.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was just, like, I'm going to try not to spoil it too much, but, like, my maternal grandfather and great uncle were talking about how they were connected to Seminole people. And, you know, they had, they had a Seminole aunt that they took, like one of the, you know, one of their, their father took refuge with in the woods. And they were telling me about this uh lake, Lake Okefenokee. And I was like, and they couldn't pronounce it right, but I was able to get it enough that when I caught, went on Google and look at it, right, I was okay. I, I get what they're trying to say. And I was, first I thought, oh, they're lying. They just talking about something, but no. Lake Okefenokee was where Seminole community existed. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe hmm. I need to listen to them more often. <laughs> yeah, and that was a moment where I was like, wait a minute, they're onto something there. They're onto something there. And then I talked to other Black people. Black people were actually. Open up a poll question to one on the internet who were like, Yeah, I feel like I'm Creek and this is what county I'm from. Creek people existed there. Well, yeah, I'm from Florida and you know, we've been in this place for several generations. We always said we had Seminole, but I didn't really know Seminole people were there. Right, right. So, no, I can't prove conclusively. We probably will never be able to conclu- co- conclude conclusively about something. However, there's some weight. And that's what I wanted to show was that we can't just readily discard it. There is some context that can boost what they're saying.
0: Right. So how did you know when you were done with the book? How did you know when you were done writing?
1: I knew I was done writing regionally speaking after I went to California. I had no intention of going to California. But, you know, when I spoke to scholars, they were like, you have to. You can't just go to the South and to the Midwest and just stop. And I think when I thought about California and moving into the present day and how I went there, how what California meant for many of us, Mm -hmm. um, and especially African-American migrants and how we were bombarded with the same injustices that we left in a previous area code and talking about the riots and all that, I think that is when, you know, I knew that it was time to end. I think the epilogue of the book, um, there's a prologue and epilogue for those who are listening, um, the epilogue of the book was that I was trying to figure out how do I finish this now? Because if if we realize that like it's just gonna keep happening, and I got narratives of people who are actually migrating again. They're going back to the South. So that's when I tried to show the cycle of it. I was like, that's how I can end it. But like in terms of me as the writer, the chronicler of this, how do I end this? And I was just thinking about migration is one of the biggest issues right now in our countries. not with black people predominantly, but it is a right. it is a concern. Um, and I wanted to talk about what that means and the stakes and why we move, why we move around.
0: Right. And where did the title come from?
1: The title came from a poem by Arna Bon Tomp, who was Louisiana, was Louisiana, a poet, um, a nocturne at Bethesda. And he writes about this law. like, is there something precious that we have forgotten wandering in strange lands? That's one of the, that's two of the lines in the poem. And it, when I read that, I was like, that's what I want the poem to be. Uh, excuse, that's what I want the title to be. Um, wandering in strange land. Something that's forgotten.
0: Right. Right. So, it, so when you saw it, you knew.
1: Yeah. Because I wanted something. I was like, I don't know what to name this book. I'm really bad at titles. It was not coming to me as easily as my first book. And I was like, well, why not just draw from poets? Poets always have these right. just beautiful lines and these beautiful turns of phrases that are also that are so full and yet so concise at the same time that I was just like, let me go to poetry.
0: Yeah. Did you, well, I guess how long did it take for you to actually do the research and the writing and everything? Not from when you finished it to when it came out, but from when you started working to when you finished.
1: Well, I will say like my book deal was announced, uh, January 2018 like a few weeks before This Will Be My Undoing came out and literally after I finished my book tour at the end of uh, what was it? I think at the end of February, I went straight into research mode, going oh, wow. to the New York Public Library, the Schaumburg, interviewing people, spending hours a day because mind you at that time, I was just a freelancer. So I didn't have the day job mm-hmm. and spending hours a day interviewing people. And then I spent about a week in each part and I was able to gather all together hundreds of pages wow. of transcription. I started writing it, I suppose, in like the summer. And I was able to turn around like a draft somewhere of like, first draft somewhere like July. Wow. Yeah, I'm pretty fast. fast. I'm a (laughs) pretty (laughs) fast writer. Oh my God. I thought you were going to be like eight years. (laughs) <laughs> no, 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 but, I, but I'll be honest if you like, I, excuse my language, but I had my ass handed to me because I went through two full drafts. and I was like, wait a minute, we're not hitting the mark yet. We got to bring it back. You know right
0: I mean? Oh my gosh. Was that, did you ever just want to turn it in and, or just throw it away and be like, fuck it, I'm yeah. not doing it. I,
1: I'm going to be honest with you. Like my body still remembers. Yeah. Like this moment um, of my book coming out has been, I've been flooded with emotion because like. I know it's eye roll inducing where people are like, Oh, I didn't think I was gonna make it, but no, I really didn't think it was (laughs) gonna come together. I thought that I was too amateurish. I thought there were way too many holes and I didn't know how to connect circles. And I remember like sitting here on this couch that I'm on just crying, Mm. you know, because I just like I don't know what to do. And even when like it was getting somewhere, we kept moving along, my body still was like just rigid and Hmm. tense because I was like, I it's not gonna get there. Right. So even now, like, as I'm working, like, I mean, I was, so I have another book coming out and it's a novel. And as we were going through the edits, I was like, there was something in my body. I just wanted to freeze up. But like, I know they're going to tell me that we got to just bring it back again. Cause you're not getting it. I, was, I had this, I had this fear because mm. of the experience that I had with wandering.
0: Right. When does the novel come? Do you know? Next year. Okay. I won't bug you about that yet. We'll save that interview for that book. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Okay, so this is, this is some of the stuff that I love to talk about, which is kind of how do you write? Where are you? Do you have snacks and beverages? Can you write with music? Do you have like all the stuff about how, is, how does Morgan sit down to write her, her work?
1: Yes, I love this question. Um, I'm an early bird. Okay. I write. I could get up and write like six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, and I don't write all day. One, yeah. I can't write all day because of a full time job, but also because I don't don't I don't think it's productive. If I know my stride, if my stride is from like seven to noon, then I'm gonna do that. Okay. Uh, I have an office in my apartment, so I go in there to write because I have a desk and I can really feel like I'm doing something rather than like putting it on my lap and on my couch in right. my living room. In terms of music, I listen to a lot of like acoustic. Afternoon acoustic playlists on Spotify. Okay. I'm also a huge fan of synthwave. If you know what synthwave is, it's like it's kind of like 80s retro music type okay. stuff. Where sometimes there might be people like singing, other times you just it feels like you're in like 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 an 80s movie, okay. and it really chills me out. So I listen to that a lot. And as far as like I'll say this though, when I was revising my novel, that was when the protests were happening. So now I was like. And it, it before, when I was doing wandering, I was like, okay, I can write at 7 o'clock because everybody else is just getting up. They're still mm. making their coffee. You know, stuff isn't popping off, so to speak, on you know, on Twitter yet. But when the protest happened, it was like immediately, like I would go to bed at 30, wake up at 6.30 in the morning, and it would just be on all day. So I yeah. actually had to download an app called Self Control. And it's an app where you write the websites you want to block and you huh. put the certain amount of time. And when you press go, you can't reverse it. Huh. So I would always block Twitter for like at least three hours in the morning so that I can get through that quick burst of energy before I went on Twitter. Because once I saw, because I knew once I saw something, I would just, I would just submerge myself in it.
0: Oh my God. I need that app so bad for Instagram.
1: Yeah. No, I, I don't write in the, I try not to, I don't write in the afternoons, mid afternoons. If I write in the evenings, it's either because I like have a nap. Or like I'm revising. But when Mm -hmm. it comes to, like, I know my stride. And I tell writers this all the time. You don't have to write all day. Some of us can't afford to write all day. We, like, you know, for men, they can write all day maybe because they have spouses to take care of the house and the kid. Mm -hmm. Or you may not have an illness. You may not have multiple jobs. You may have money. If you know your stride, if you know, for example, I know I'm the sharpest at this hour. Or I know I'm the sharpest here just to use that time and maximize it. And that's what I do. I'm the sharpest in the early morning.
0: I love that. Do you have uh, writing snacks or beverages?
1: Mm-mm. Because I because I know if I eat if I eat something or if I drink something, I'm gonna have to use the bathroom. Mm. And I'm in like a, in the zone when I'm really okay. going. Once I get through that hard opening first paragraph, I take off. I see. And sometimes my stomach will be growling, or you know, my, I get you know, I get a dry mouth. But I just like no, keep going. And then when you finish, you <laughs> a thousand words. Then <laughs> you can have X, Y, and Z.
0: Oh my god, I love that. So you're really like locked in.
1: Yeah, I'm very disciplined. That's the thing I think my my editors like about me is that even when I was in college, was a little bit of a brag, I never did all nighter in college. I never mm. did it. Um, I I would turn in assignments sometimes a week or so early. I turned in my thesis like two months early wow. because just give me the deadline. Like yeah. I don't need anyone to hover over me. Like I'm I've always been a disciplined person. Sometimes to my detriment. 'Cause I tend I do tend to overwork myself. I do I am very susceptible to burnout. But no, you don't have to tell me twice. Once I get going, I get going.
0: How do you protect yourself against burnout?
1: Um, honestly, uh listening more to my body. And I think like being in therapy now. When I first started mm-hmm. writing, like and you know, when we talk about money money and privilege, like I can take better care of myself because I make more money now. I can work out more, I have better insurance, I can go get my nails done or get a massage if I want to. Um, but sometimes I just let burnout happen, and what I mean by that is like today I had like a mini burnout where I just like I need a nap, and I asked to reschedule the meeting, and to not feel bad about it, mm-hmm. because I used to always be the person where it was like, oh, does email, respond to it quickly, inbox got to be zero, um you have something to do, do it, don't ask for extension, extension, and all those things. But now I'm just like, no, this work and this career is gonna be long, mm-hmm. and I gotta be here for it. So if I feel in my body I'm just not coherent. Just ask the reschedule and explain why. Because you're a human and this, and you know, writing is solitary work. So, to be more vocal and communicative, which again has helped through therapy. So, Hmm. sometimes when I have these burnout moments where I just feel like I'm becoming irritable, that's how I know it's approaching. I'm like, that's when you got to check in with yourself. That's when I know I'm like, all right, what's going on? Something's got to be reallocated or readjusted here. Right. So, yeah.
0: Have you found that it's different? writing in the pandemic than it was before for you
1: uh yes now during the pandemic during the beginning of the lockdown it was hard for me because i kept a my asking myself like why is it that i'm feeling a type of way i was a freelancer i know what it's like where mm-hmm. my work and my personal life just converge and i'm just taking on anything anytime because i want to be able to pay my rent or whatever but then I realized that, you know, I'm, I'm based in New York City. We were the epicenter at one point. Mm-hmm. And I remembered, like, well, at least when I was a freelancer back in 2018, I could still go to the movies. Mm-hmm. I could still go out to dinner. And I tell people all the time, like, from the, from the beginning of the pandemic, and um, beginning of the lockdown, sorry, um, from late March all the way to, like, the end of April, it was terrible here. All, I didn't hear anything. I didn't even hear, like, every mm-hmm. night all I heard was sirens. Right. It was it was the most macabre setting that I've ever been in. Um, and so my writing in the pandemic, I will say that it, I've been very very productive in a sense that like I don't, really don't have any distractions. I don't have I don't have a fam like I don't have children. I live alone, um, and you know I'm I'm healthy, thank God, and I haven't lost my job, so I have to work. I'm not an essential worker, so you know I I can write, and I've been very productive. But at the same time, because I'm in the house, excuse me, sometimes I'm in an apartment, Um, I have to figure out more ways to settle down. Right. I have to figure out more ways, like, when's play time? When's, mm-hmm. like, when are you going to close that tab? You know what I mean? Right. So definitely ha- I definitely had to have more conversations with myself to be like, okay, you're going to do this, like, Zoom workout class, and you're going to do this watercolor thing tonight in order to make room for fun, especially when the world can't, offer me that right
0: now right right that makes so much sense okay this is an opportunity for you to show that you're not just a super smart human but you're also a super dumb human which is (laughs) what's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try
1: oh my god uh (laughs) abyssinian
0: I don't even know what that word means, Morgan. How dare you okay, pick a word that's okay, so okay. like? I'm trying to get you to say something to show that you're human, okay. and you're over here saying okay. words I've never oh, heard.
1: So, so there's a really famous church called Abyssinian Baptist Church, and I think okay. Abyssinian was the empire that's now <laughs> in Ethiopia. I okay. can never, I can never spell that.
0: Okay, me neither. Uh,
1: okay, <laughs> okay, I'm trying to think of other. Oh, abysmal. Okay. I can never spell abysmal. It's because of that b y s or whatever. I'm like, damn it, I can never get it. Cause sometimes things are not bad especially in the world it's, it's abysmal sure so i could never get that on the first try. i'm like god
0: <laughs> that's crazy. oh my gosh i love that your first word was a word that i've never even I'm heard i'm so of.
1: sorry I, I, <laughs> I just i didn't do that right
0: <laughs> i appreciate this about you obviously you're just a genius and that's fine but i appreciate you going above and beyond for even the word you can't <laughs>
1: I know, I know, it's funny, it's funny I gotta say something, I remember I was on a phone call one time, I did such a jerk move, I was younger and it was like, you know how when you're trying to spell something to an operator and you're like A as in apple, B as in whatever I was like, C as in cat A as in you know, animal, D as in dog E as in eucalyptus, and I was like, oh my god, (laughs) that lady on the other (laughs) end was just like, oh, what a jerk like well, I was out of all things, you could have said elephant, you could right. have said egg, but you went straight to eucalyptus.
0: eucalyptus. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> That's incredible. All
1: right. This is,
0: this is an important question because I'm sure you're going to have some great answers. For people who love your book, Wandering Strange Lands, what are some books that you think they could also read that kind of are in conversation with the work that you've done?
1: Yes. Um, I would say to read The Worth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson, <laughs> uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman, um, Mules and Men and Go Tell It to My Horse by Zora Neale Hurston. Um, In terms of more like narrative nonfiction, that's very personal, um, Men We Reeked uh, by Jasmine Ward, I think would help. I think Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, And even on the, on the, the, the fiction side of it, Song of Solomon by Tony Morrison. I know that's like really big headed, but Song of Solomon is about, a man that tries to trace his roots mm. and, uh, and because he feels rootless. Um, and so I think that that might help in terms of the themes. Um, so I would definitely uh, say those works.
0: Okay. Those are all great. We've covered some of those on the show, actually, which is always nice to oh, hear. Yeah. And Warm Through Other Suns is one of my most favorite books. So yes. I always, I constantly am screaming at people to read that. What sort of stuff were you yourself reading and watching while you were writing
1: uh, I was reading Barracoon mm. by Zora Neale Hurston oh god just, uh, so that's good. the type of work that I would love to do for the rest of my life Um, so Barracoon I was reading I was reading well I was reading Sadia Hartman and I was also just reading like a lot of Toni Morrison novels so like Sula mm. Jazz for example, um, I was reading, like, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys. So um, good. I was reading um, Claudia Rankin's play The White Card. Mm. Um, I was also <laughs> – I love the mm. – uh, I, just... I was reading, like, like Roxanne Gay's Hunger and Difficult Women. Um, I was reading uh, excuse me, Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied, Sing by Jasmine Ward-Heavy by Kiese Layman. Um, and, oh, my God, just so many – um,
0: and are and you these reading books- these things to feed your writing skills to feed your like what what why are, why were you going to those texts to feed me okay,
1: you know what I mean like it's hard because I'm in publishing industry and I also edit so sometimes it's hard to read for leisure, sure, but I really wanted to read these books because they were so buzzy, and I knew they were gonna help me in in many different ways of why just in terms of craft and style and all that but as i was reading i wasn't thinking in that sort of algorithmic ways i was just like just delve into the experiences of these right. characters or the patterns. Right.
0: right okay and then if you were gonna write your own barracoon type book is there a person or a kind of person or a person with a certain experience that you would want to to feature obviously you can't interview the last black cargo
1: no, but it's like I would personally, because I feel bad because I'm trying to research this now and see if I can oh. buy something. Oh, um, Never mind, you don't have to that, answer. <laughs> oh, no, I would just say that like I want to talk, I want to find a ways in, for African American experiences where the past and the present are so full of life mm. that they're almost parallel to each other. That's one of the reasons why I do the, the stuff that I do. I love history. I love archival research. I love finding a way to uplift the people that we may never know fully, and that's okay. So when I think about the work of Zorna Hurst, and I love the fact that she has taught me as a writer to, that I don't need to be a distant observer. I can be subjective mm-hmm. and submerge myself in these communities and still have something to say with authority. And I think that that's what I want to do moving forward. I think also Rachel Gonza who's a Pulitzer Prize winner mm-hmm. and um, who's writing her own book, she's also taught me that too. I, I can be subjective. And I can, you know, show the blood and the pulse of African-American lives. And that's okay. So I think that's what I want to do. I want that to be the current that carries me throughout my writing career. It's so interesting
0: to hear you talk about that and those being your desires because your first book, I would never have guessed that about you in reading your first book, that exactly. that you had this, like, research bent and that that was something that you were so passionate about. So it's exciting It's exciting to hear you talk about that because it's just such a reminder that even authors that we love and that we've read their work, that there's so much more going on than their first book or their second book.
1: And I'm grateful for the fact that I was given the opportunity to give this, you know, to, to, to write this because I've always been a curious person. But I will say it's like when people ask me. For my first and my second book like what's different I, I don't know where to start when I, 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 I my first book came out when I was 25 I'm um, going on 26 later in that year I'm 28 now if for any of you are in astrology I'm going through my first Saturn return that's a huge where a lot of stuff is happening in your life Um, and just in terms of the scope of the book my first book was very personal in fact it might be you know depending on who you ask might be claustrophobic at some point you know what I'm saying but with this book, I I wanted to show you how my life exists in the mosaic of African-American history. And I can bring in my family members and other people. Um, And that's what I want to do. And I I want people to see like, oh, she's creating a body of work now. Mm -hmm. Like I I feel privileged as a black woman and as a young black woman to be able to expand and to have readers who can watch me expand, Mm -hmm. who can watch me question, who can watch me make mistakes and who can watch who can give me the space to turn around i don't take that for granted
0: i well i for one i'm very excited to see where your next book goes because when i think about your first book and now this book I'm, i'm waiting for that third kind of prong on the triangle right to see where it lands or to see kind of your next step i guess maybe it's more like a like a line or a graph maybe it's not a triangle but it's exciting when authors can can do different things and are not scared right. to try different things and are willing to kind right. of figure it out as they grow. And I remember my Saturn returns well, and good luck to you. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's just like, well, for me, it's like my next book is a novel, you know what I'm saying? So right. for me, it's like, it, it's a novel and then it might be my second novel, my build off the first novel. And I just want to be able to try, yeah. I think about black women across different industries it 's so easy to get boxed in it 's so easy for people to think that they know us to flatten our three dimensional nature and right. i and I just want to be able to try that doesn 't mean i 'm going to go into something half haphaz- as haphazardly but allow me to try allow me to make mistakes and allow me to revisit and to right. uncover you know for as long as i I can have this career and as long as I can just keep trying and I can keep endeavoring, then I will feel more curious. And I think I will just feel fulfilled in a way, even if all these different investigations may be irresolute. That's the nature right. of it.
0: Right, right. Gosh, I I I want that so badly for you and for all of us, right? The ability to, huh? to, to be multidimensional and to follow our passions and all of that. Mm-hmm okay I'll just do one more question I always end with this one which is if you could have one person dead or alive read your book who would you want that to be
1: oh I, Zora No Hurston okay I would want Zora no Hurston I would want me and Zora to be at my Harlem apartment in mm. a bunch of soul food she can cook it if she wants to or we can go <laughs> to one of the restaurants here and I would just she would sit at my you know table and I would just pass wandering to her Mm. And I would, and I would wrap it into a bow and say, like, this is for you. Like I mm. wrote this not only in honor of my ancestors and my family, but I wrote this because you made it so. Mm. So I would, I would do that.
0: <laughs> I love that so much. That was amazing. Morgan, thank you. thank you so much for being here. Everyone at home, Morgan's newest book is called Wandering in Strange Lands. It's out now wherever you get your books. Be sure to pick up a copy. Morgan, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.
0: And everyone else, we will see you in the Stacks. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Morgan Durkins for being our guest. I'd also like to thank Hannah Bishop for setting up this interview. Remember, we will be discussing Sula by Toni Morrison on August 26th for the Stacks Book Club with Britt Bennett. Everything we discussed on today's episode can be found in the link in the show notes. And for more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tegeragists. Will Sterling is our producer and sound editor, and The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.